On this prequel episode, we've got our Zathura fan poll follow-up. We're learning about decades later sequels and previewing Dr. Sleep. Hello and welcome back to This Film is Lit, the podcast where we talk movies, talk about movies that are based on books. It's another prequel week. We got some stuff to talk about, so we're going to get right into our patron shoutouts. I put up with you because your father and mother were our finest patrons, that's why. We have one new patron this week, and I think they are a returning patron. And that is Lynn Flakasinski at the $5 Hugo Award winning level. Thank you, Lynn, for returning uh, at the $5 level. At least I think. I think you've been a patron before. I also think there was somebody recently who was a patron who rejoined who we may not have read. I don't know when it tells us and when it, it's a little confusing confusing. of when like people come like leave and come back, which is totally fine. Totally understand. Not it's just I'm we may not always catch it and say it if you're a returning patron. This one just showed up. I don't know. I don't know how it works. I don't understand the inner workings of Patreon, but uh, there you go. <laughs> so Yeah, we're just along for the ride. <laughs> along for the ride. Uh, but thank you for uh, supporting us at $5. Lynn Flakazinski. And as always, we have our Academy Award winning patrons, and they are Matilde, Steve from Arizona, Paul, Kat Ensminger, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young's Gratch, just Gratch. Shelby says, get ready for spooky season with it. Calls from the Veil and Monsters and Mayhem. That darn skag, V Frank and Alina Starkoff. Thank you all very much for continuing, continuing to support us at the $15 a month level. You're all the very best. Katie, it's time to find out what people had to say about Zathura. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like... Uh... Your opinion, man. Okay, well, on Patreon, we had three votes for the movie and two for the book. Steve from Arizona said, I'll give the movie some props for trying its best to be unique and rely on non-CGI effects, but at the end of the day, it's still a kid's movie and it's just not my cup of tea. I chose the book not just to be contrarian, but I always appreciate high-quality art in any book. I think like a lot of people, I thought this was just a cash grab Jumanji knockoff, only to find out years later it was written by the same person. It's just a relatively forgettable film in my book. Fair enough. I will say the one thing in there I I specifically do agree with is I think the book's art is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, the movie does a lot of cool stuff, but I thought I I do think that Jumanji and this like uh, Chris Van Allsburg's art style yeah, his art is style really is really cool and and cool and i and so i i definitely would give the books prop or the book props yeah. for that no i just i i enjoyed the way that the film leaned a little bit more into like the mid-century yeah like spaceman kind mm-hmm. of vibe mm-hmm. um but yeah his art his style of art is really neat yeah it's very cool it's definitely very cool Opens up for nobody, said, I think my family had this movie in our catalog of DVDs for long car rides. The scene where the younger brother is not banished away got stuck somewhere deep inside of me, and to this day, I think about it. The boys remind me of my sisters, who hated each other growing up, so maybe that's why. Maybe I had some latent anxiety that they would destroy each other. For the staying power of that scene, I have to give it to the movie. That said, I hated this movie as a kid because I was appalled by the sister having a crush on the guy who turned out to be her brother. To me, that was unforgivable, and I hated it. 
I think I refused to watch the movie again after I saw it the first time. But that's better than Jumanji, which I, where I refused to even watch the movie even once for irrational reasons known only to a past <laughs> version of myself. Very interesting. Okay. Um, uh, there is a comment that we'll get to later that I want to talk about that I think is a very point or very um accurate uh, assessment of the the whole her the crushing brother, sister on thing. brother sister yeah. thing. Uh, we'll get to that later. I want to talk about it then. But um, yeah. Well, I hope you've seen Jumanji now. Did you watch it for our podcast? Because we did it. Should have. It's good. It is good. And I assume based on the first fact that they say a past version of myself that I do not remember means that they probably have watched it since then because they don't know they no longer know the reason they didn't so. <laughs> but anyways and caleb parentheses n-e-m close parentheses said the zygons you mentioned are from doctor who yes well. i yep. yeah so it's zorgons zygons blorgons there was something else that somebody one, mentioned. Yeah. I couldn't find it again. I think it must well, have been on a different the, post. I, and there's another one that the, uh, I swear the Battlestar Galactica ones are have a similar like name. I'm I'm googling uh, villains. They are maybe it's not Battlestar Galactica. Maybe it's yeah. No, those. What are those guys? Cylons. So that's another one. Cylons, Cylons is Battlestar Galactica. So apparently it's just like a sci-fi alien Ons. naming convention yeah. to go with Gons or Ons yeah. at the end. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, Zygons, I just like, I knew I remember that. Yes, absolutely. From Doctor Yeah, we got a couple different comments here and there about like, oh, it's also sounds <laughs> it's like also this. this. It's also this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On Facebook, we had zero votes for the movie and one for the book. No comments. Thank you, Facebook, for burying everything. <laughs> like you always do. On Twitter, we had four votes for the movie, one for the book, and one listener who couldn't decide. Kelly Napier said, I can appreciate the expansion of the story for the movie, but I love the simplicity of the book, and I like that you don't get to see what certain things entirely look like. It's fun to imagine. Mm-hmm. And Shelby's Ready for Spooky Season said, While I knew of many sci-fi properties growing up, I didn't watch or read much of them until I was an adult. Looking back, I'm pretty sure this movie was the thing that got me interested in science fiction as a kid, and the first time I loved anything in the genre. The movie does such a fantastic job of incorporating the many staples of sci-fi while keeping it easy to follow for a younger audience, which continues to impress me. I love the practical effects, especially the Zorgons. I was a little worried revisiting them in the movie because they were my favorite part, but they still looked so good. I also think the cast does a great job. I knew of Jumanji growing up, but it was only after this movie that I sought it out to see how it compared to my precious Zathura. It was okay. <laughs> Lastly, everyone always points to quicksand being obnoxiously common in fiction, but I'm starting to think dumb waiters are up there too. I'm not sure I've ever seen one, but they seem to show up whenever a character needs to sneak around. That is one of those things that always shows up in media mm -hmm. more often than it does in real life or at least more often than it does in real life if you're not around old expensive houses <laughs> yeah i think they were pretty common in a certain type of house once upon a time i had a neighbor who but... had a dumb waiter um 
that I don't think it worked, but they had one. Uh, I had, I think, a couple, at least one neighbor who had a dumbwaiter. My grandma's house also may have had a dumbwaiter. I thought I remembered you telling me that your I believe it did, and I, did. but I don't think either of them worked or like yeah. they they just were shut. Like when I experienced, I just saw the door. Like I remembered them, like seeing them, but we never were able to like use them or anything because mm-hmm. they just it was old enough that they they weren't operational anymore. Um, but I, I think I've seen them a couple times, but those are, and those were both like, you know, <clears throat> both of the ones that I can think of specifically. One was like a neighbor who would lived in a gigantic old house that was like, yeah, they're, they're, both of these houses were built in the late 1800s, I think, or early, very early 1900s. Um, and were and were like four story houses or whatever. Right. Um, so it was one of those things where, yeah, if you're not around that very specific <laughs> thing, you just wouldn't, even if you, even if you grew up in a well-to-do neighborhood, if it was all modern houses, you just wouldn't yeah. see it. And yeah, sort of nobody has a dumbwaiter You'd be dumb more likely to see anymore. an elevator than a right. dumbwaiter. Um, but yeah, it is It is one of those things that is interesting how much it shows up in some media. When, yeah. yeah, for a lot of people, they've never seen one in real life. When I was growing up, one of my aunts had a laundry chute. That's the same thing, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah, I remember because that was another thing. Like my my, our, I remember a few of my friends had laundry chutes and I always thought those were cool. And I yeah. didn't because our house didn't have one. Um, and that's literally just a hole in the wall (laughs) (laughs) that just goes down to a different place in the house. But yeah, but yeah, it is, it is interesting. And yeah, the Zorgons hold up. Uh, I could see one of those things where you're like, oh boy, how's this good? But yeah, Mm -hmm. it it all holds up very well. And I think that's one of the big benefits to practical effects too, is that it's far more likely to hold up than CG. Yeah, were this done with like purely CG in 2003 or five or whatever, would have looked terrible. Most likely. I mean, it probably wouldn't have looked terrible, but there would have been more stuff that would have been like, oh boy, that doesn't quite hold up. (laughs) Yeah. All right. And over on Instagram, we had three votes for the movie, two for the book. I would just real quick before we get and I'll have you repeat that, but Uh I would agree. I prefer Jumanji because I have a a lot of nostalgia for it. Like if you're if you're going to ask me which one I'd rather watch again, like Mm -hmm. in a few years, I would watch Jumanji. But that's purely because I have a lot of nostalgia for it. I do think that Zathura might be a better movie. Like, overall. Like, I think it has a uh, maybe a better message that is... Not, not that Jumanji has a bad message or anything, but I think it maybe has a better message and a more, like, widely applicable message um, and a, a more unique message. Um, and it's also... I think it will hold up a little bit longer because Jumanji did use, they also used a lot of practical effects that hold up, but there is a, maybe a little bit more CGI that looks a little rough here and there mm-hmm. uh, at times, but it also. Isn't, isn't that just the part of the charm of Jumanji? Yeah, and now, that is though. part of the charm. Like, you know, like some of the monkey scenes look <laughs> yeah. a little, uh, and some of the other things here and there, but but there also are a lot of practical effects in it as well, like the spiders and the lion and, and, and other, you know, the plants and all that sort of stuff. So it's not like they also used a lot of practical effects, but. Um, but anyways, that my point being, I could see if you were coming in and you didn't have, like, I think if you showed both of those movies to a film critic who had no prior experience with either mm-hmm. of them, I think most, which 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 actually pairs with the Rotten Tomatoes reviews, yeah. most of them would would rate uh, Zathura as like a better overall movie. Um, but I just have, yeah, I have that personal, you know, nostalgic soft spot for Jumanji. For so. sure. So on Instagram, we had three votes for the movie, two for the book. Jane QR said, I have so much love for this movie, but I'll try to keep this short. 
One, this is the first movie that I watched as a kid and recognized that I could relate to the characters. As a youngest sibling myself, I could relate to Danny's frustration about your older siblings seeming better at everything than you, and those moments where you just want to play with your older sibling but they're dealing with their own feelings and take it out on you. Two, the effects, cast, and story have aged so well it is an, it's an enjoyable watch even 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Three, I love how Kristen Stewart is basically the comic relief of this movie, not because she makes jokes all the time, but because she's a teen girl that wakes up in space due to her younger brothers playing a board game, which is a hilarious concept by itself. I understand the distaste for the movie having her have a crush on her brother, but I interpret it as a slight parody to Star Wars Luke and Leia being siblings reveal. So I agree with like all of this and that and that last note in particular was the thing I mentioned earlier that when I read this. Uh, when this person posted this, I was like, yeah, that's a very good point. I think that mm-hmm. is definitely a little bit of, and especially now we, I mean, we know now how much, and not to be fair, John Favreau didn't write this movie, but directed it and was a big part of it. Knowing how big of a Star Wars nerd John Favreau yeah. is, as we are aware now, um, based on like the fact that it's like all he does now um, is, is Star Wars stuff is, it makes a lot of sense. And I think that is a good, a, a good point as that being kind of like a, a fun little jokey nod to Yeah, that's that. fair. I didn't think about it like that, but I, I like that interpretation yeah. better than just having it be what it is on its own. Yeah, like on a surface <laughs> level without that context. Yeah, I agree. But I, I think that is a good point. I think it I think it does kind of work in that context. All right. Well, our winner was the movie with ten votes or ten votes to the books six plus one listener who couldn't decide. There you go. So the movie comes out on t- wait. Yes. Yeah, I just miswrote it. Okay. I was reading it and I was like, my brain exploded. Yes. The movie comes out on top. All right. Fantastic. Katie, it's time now for us to learn a little bit about decades later sequels. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. As I'm sure I don't need to tell anyone listening to this podcast, we are in an era of movie making focused on massive franchises, remakes, reboots, and sequels. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's understandable right now. A lot of industries are in an uncertain place, and when things are uncertain, we tend to gravitate towards things that are safe, that we know will be at least moderately successful because they come with a ready-made fan base. Yes, and... uh... I think a part of it, too, is that, you know, not to blame the victims of it here, but we as consumers consume the yes, the, we, yes. the entertainment industry makes things that we consume and we consume. Oh, we can we consume those things. Yes, we consume exactly. remakes and um, franchises and sequels and, and all that sort of stuff. And so that's what they give us. Yes. In the words of Bo Burnham. They'll stop beating that dead horse when it stops spitting Spitting out out money. money. Absolutely. Um, But we actually are not here today to to bemoan the dominance of franchises and remakes at the box office. We're here to talk specifically about sequels Um, and even more specifically sequels that were made and released many years following the first or other films in their franchise. Um, There's a lot of examples of this. Uh, Blade Runner 2049, Top Gun Maverick, and Hocus Pocus 2 were a couple that jumped straight to my mind as soon as I started working on this segment. Yeah, I mean, two of those this year. Yes. Yeah. Um, And it's something that we've always seen. Mm -hmm. 
it, it is maybe a little bit more prevalent right now than it has been previously, but it is something that has kind of always been done. Yeah, I think it's, and it's definitely a thing that's kind of slowly ramped up, accelerated in how often we get them. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of always been a thing, but it's like very few and far between. And then we get a few more and more in the 90s and 2000s, and then now it's really... Yes. Kind of taken off, I think. Yeah. And part of that is because of the way that pop culture just works now. Yeah. That yeah. we kind of keep recycling the same things. Yeah. Um, but going after a nostalgic built-in audience isn't the only reason for a sequel to come out many years after its predecessors. Um, there's all kinds of red tape that can get in the way of a sequel that can cause it to come out a little late. Yeah. Um, for example, Mad Max Fury Road took the world by storm in 2015. Best movie of the last 30 <laughs> years, maybe? Um, 30 maybe. years after the last, last Mad Max movie in 1985. Um, but director George Miller was actually set to start making another Mad Max film in 2001, which, yes, is also quite a while after the release of the previous film, but not, not quite, quite as, as long. long. Yeah. Um, but then 9-11 happened and wrecked the economy, uh, and the idea for another film was pushed even harder to the back burner following Mel Gibson's very public ah, meltdown yes. in the mid-2000s. Yes. So instead of we having... a new Mad Max. Yes. <laughs> so instead of having a Mad Max in 2002 or 2003, we waited until 2015. Yep. And I'm okay with it because it was yes. a really good movie. Again, one of the best of the last several decades. Um, A more tragic example, Uh, there were rumors of a Top Gun sequel as early as 2010, but everything got tabled for quite a while following director Tony Scott's suicide in 2012. Um, And then I believe that got delayed again due to COVID. I think it was Uh, supposed to come out in 2020. I believe it like finished filming. I could be wrong about this, but yeah, there, I definitely COVID played a big part Mm -hmm. in there because I remember seeing either a trailer or hearing talks about it being in production or something in like 2019 yeah and then yes covid came and it got yeah completely shelved or not shelved but yeah it delayed everything Mm -hmm. um then sometimes circumstances aren't tragic or even upsetting sometimes things are just beyond a studio's control Disney wanted to make more Mary Poppins movies almost immediately following the original very successful 1964 film, but series author P.L. Travers hated the adaptation so much that she refused to allow Disney to touch any more of her material. Um, They finally got permission from her estate in 2012, 16 years after the author's death, giving us Mary Poppins Returns in 2018, um, which, according to the internet, is the longest interval between film sequels and cinematic history at 54 years. I, I almost felt like there had to be some weird... I no, I can't think of anything else. That's what I found. No, yeah, no, I mean, that, that's, and, that's a long time, like, for I'll sure. I'll agree that I think things can get a little fuzzy, because, I guess it depends like, on what you call a sequel, yeah. Right, it depends on what you call a sequel, because I included Mad Max in this, but I would almost call that more of a reboot. Yeah, I mean, it's a different character. It's than not, a sequel. It's not, you know, yeah. But it's like also, a I, like, I'm pretty sure Mary Poppins Returns, like, makes references to the original film, which makes it, I've never actually seen it, but yeah, I'm pretty either. sure it does, which makes it it's feel like to me more of an, more of an actual, sequel. yeah, direct sequel. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think there are references in like Fury Road to things from mm-hmm. the the earlier, you know, World Warrior Mad Max films, but um like different actors play different like a Morton Joe, the guy who played him was in the originals or in some of the other ones playing a completely different character. Mm-hmm. Um and obviously Mad Max is a completely different Yeah. So it, it it gets a little fuzzy with in terms of what we're actually calling a sequel versus like again yeah, like for a, sure. a remake or a reimagining or a spiritual sequel that's like even <laughs> a, its own kind of different category, which I think is what you would probably classify Fury Road as is like a mm-hmm. spiritual sequel as opposed to like an a direct sequel or something. Uh, there are also a lot of people who have to sign off on a new film based on an existing property, and sometimes those people just have differing opinions. Uh, part of the reason that Independence Day Resurgence took so long to get to theaters is that director Roland Emmerich, or is it Emmerich? Emmerich. Emmerich. Um, apparently doesn't really like sequels. Uh, he once told Entertainment Weekly that he would only make one if he, quote, can see another way how to make it look, how to make it not look like a sequel. Interesting. Uh, Roland Emmerich would not be the the film <laughs> director <laughs> that I would look at and be like, this person has a lot of, like, very strict opinions about like i don't know it's apparently not, he has at least he makes one like the most opinion. ridiculous big budget popcorn films and i like quite a few of them but the most ridiculous big budget popcorn films that's just not the person i would be like well they would be like mm, no sequels <laughs> like that's you know <laughs> like i don't know this is very interesting but he did eventually make sequels. yes yes which i never saw. many years later I did not ever see Um, So Dr. Sleep is a bit unique in this conversation. Um, The Shining is getting a sequel, not because filmmakers wanted to cash in on fans of the original film, but because the author of the original book decided to revisit its story over 30 years later. Um, And I'm very interested to see how that dynamic and the differences between the original book and film will affect both the reading and viewing experience. I'll have some more of that in the in the movie notes. And um, also the reason the film got made, we'll talk about. So. Yes, excellent. We will get to that. All right, speaking of Dr. Sleep, it's time to learn a little bit about Dr. Sleep, the novel. You're magic, like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place. A dark place. Hi there. Dr. Sleep is a 2013 horror novel by American writer Stephen King, and it is the sequel to his 1977 novel, The Shining, which we have also done on this podcast. Yes, we did. Uh, last uh, Halloween? Two Halloweens. Two Halloweens, two Halloweens ago. ago. I believe that was Halloween 2020. I think you're right. Uh, King described the idea for a sequel to The Shining on November 19th, 2009, during a promotional tour for his novel Under the Dome. Which is a television series, or at least a short-lived. I I didn't watch any of it, but I know they made a television series of Mm -hmm. that. He said that the sequel would follow a character from the original, Danny Torrance, the little boy, (laughs) um, who is now in his 40s in the sequel. Mm -hmm. Um, on December 1st, 2009, King posted a poll on his official website asking visitors to vote on which book they thought he should write next, Dr. Sleep or the next Dark Tower novel, The Wind Through the Keyhole, stating, quote, we will be counting your votes, and of course it all means nothing if the muse doesn't speak. I'm actually amazed that, and you're going to get to the breakdown here, but I'm actually amazed that Dr. Sleep, I guess I'm not amazed, I don't know. 
I guess I could see it going either way, but the, the Dark Tower novels are so, mm-hmm. I feel like they have such a rabid fan base. It's maybe not a huge fan base where, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, anyway. yeah I don't know. Um, I really like the fact that King was like, oh, it all means nothing if the muse yeah. doesn't speak because I I feel like Stephen King like throttles the muse until it does speak. <laughs> Is how I feel like that goes. I think he snorts. Well, not anymore. But he used to snort this <laughs> muse until it spoke. But um, anyway, so voting ended on December thirty first of two thousand nine, and Doctor Sleep did win the poll with five thousand eight hundred and sixty one votes to the wind through the keyholes five thousand eight hundred and twelve. So it won by a pretty narrow margin. Um, and then the wind through the keyhole actually ended up releasing in 2011, two years before okay. Doctor so Sleep. Well, that's what so, he meant by the yeah. I, nothing I, I went on I went on a journey through the process of getting this book published. I was like, oh, oh, oh. Okay, so that clearly <laughs> means he was like, yeah, I'm just writing Dark Tower. <laughs> um, King also hired a researcher during his work on Doctor Sleep specifically to help keep track of continuity between The Shining and Dr. Sleep. Huh. Which I think is really interesting. Imagine being that person. Yeah. You literally just have, like, your job is to have spreadsheets. Yeah. <laughs> with facts from these two books. Um, so the story was partly inspired by Oscar, a therapy cat who allegedly predicted the deaths of terminally ill patients. Um, Oscar went viral on in like 2017, I think. I looked this up because I did not remember this. Um, I have a vague memory. Of yeah, it. but it, yeah, it was just a a cat who was all who would always be like by patients right before they died. Um, not gonna, not gonna, <laughs> not gonna chime in on this one. Well, I know your feelings yeah. on it, but it is like it's an interesting idea. Yeah, yeah no, it's a great idea for a like a horse. Yeah, absolutely, sure. it's a great idea for like uh, for a Stephen King novel. Hundred percent. Um, and King said, "Quote: I thought to myself, I want to write a story about that, and then I made the connection with Danny Torrance as an adult working in hospice. I thought, that's it. I'm gonna write this book. The cat had to be there." It always takes two things for me to get going. It's like the cat was the transmission and Danny was the motor. Um, So in 2012, a publication date of January 2013 was announced but quickly removed from King's website as King was apparently not happy with the present draft of the novel and felt it needed a lot of editing. The official publication date ended up being in September of 2013. The book reached the first position on the New York Times bestseller list for print and ebook fiction combined, hardcover fiction, and ebook fiction on its own. Uh, Doctor Sleep also won the 2013 Bram Stoker Award for best novel. Um, and then getting into some reviews, I would not say that this had mixed reviews. Um, most of what I looked at was generally positive, mm-hmm. although. A lot of the quotes that I saw, it seemed like reviewers could not agree on whether or not the novel was scary, which is interesting. Um, But uh, Alan Schuess of NPR wrote, A rather neatly designed plot has kicked in even before the book opens. Stephen King is still scaring the hell out of me. Joshua Rothman of The New Yorker said, 
The Shining is introspective, austere, and unsettlingly plausible, which is why it comes to mind when you visit a creepy hotel, play croquet, or see an angry dad with his kid. But Dr. Sleep, which feels less like a sequel and more like a spinoff, is unapologetically fun, freewheeling, and bizarre. And James Kidd of The Independent said... The novel's well-intentioned tale of redemption through sobriety, work, and family seems to have profound personal significance for King, himself a recovering alcoholic. Perhaps it is too personal. The Shining had terrified by marrying a recognizable young family to claustrophobia and an unflinching portrayal of a loved one becoming a monster. Dr. Sleep's soupy, supernatural atmosphere reads like horror inspired by fantasy and salvation drawn from therapy. In this, the story doesn't escape its own contrivances. I mean, okay. That last sentence doesn't make, doesn't <laughs> to read to me like a bad thing. Like, but then kind of concludes like it is. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Sleep's soupy, soupy supernatural atmosphere reads like horror inspired by fantasy and salvation drawn from therapy i'm like what well some of the some of the reviews to me felt like they went in expecting something different yeah i guess i and, and then and, didn't get the thing that they were expecting i guess based on that the the, the review before that one about it, how it feels more like a spin-off than a sequel i guess if you're mm -hmm. expecting something more like the shining right then sure but I, I just thought that one was interesting because it's, you know, in this, the story doesn't escape its own contrivances. And it's like, I guess I don't know what they're talking about because I have not read the book. Yeah, yeah. But I, the sentence that precedes that is like, to me, sounds like <laughs> a ringing endorsement. Like, it sounds like something I would be interested in. A soupy supernatural atmosphere that reads like horror inspired by fantasy and salvation drawn from therapy. I'm like, okay. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds really <laughs> cool. Like, well, I'm into that. I don't right. know. But it doesn't sound anything like The Shining. No. no. Fa so. Fair enough. Fair, <laughs> fair, fair enough. Uh, speaking of The Shining, and well, I mean, it's all about The Shining. But let's talk about the movie. You're magic. Like me. I need you to listen to me. The world's a hungry place. A dark place. Hi there. I only met two or three people like us. They died. When I was a kid, I bumped into these things. I don't know about magic. I... I always called it The Shining. Dr. Sleep is a 2019 film written and directed by Mike Flanagan, most known for Hush, great movie if you haven't seen it, Ouija, uh, Origin of Evil, it's subtitle, Ouija, semicolon, oh. Origin of Evil, is what that is, uh, The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass. I've seen Midnight Mass, also very good. Have not seen the other ones, although I've heard nothing but good things about Haunting of Hill House and yeah. Bly Manor. yeah. Um, and Hush, I th thought, I had no idea he did Hush. Great, great film. That was one of my favorite horror films of, that I've seen in a while. Um, the film stars Ewan McGregor, Rebecca Ferguson, Ferguson Kylie Curran, 
Carl Lumbly, Zach McLarnan, Emily Island, or sorry, Emily Island Lind, Bruce Greenwood, and Cliff Curtis. The film has a 78% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 59% on Metacritic, and a 7.3 out of 10 on IMDb, and it made $72 million against a budget of roughly $50 million. So, Warner Brothers began work on Doctor Sleep as early as 2014, a year after the book came out. Uh, and at one point, Akiva Goldsman, known for iRobot, I Am Legend, Cinderella Man, was attached to write and direct, but the film was never able to secure the funding it needed in order to get moving and kind of just stayed in pre-production limbo for quite a while until it came out in 2017 uh, and it was a smash success. Yes. And they said, okay, Stephen King's bankable. What can we green light? Dr. <laughs> Sleep. Let's go. Exactly. Uh, and then in January of 2018, Mike Flanagan was hired on to rewrite gold, uh, Goldsman's script and to direct the film while Goldsman would end up receiving an executive producer credit for his involvement in the early stages of the film. So uh, on why he was interested in directing Dr. Sleep, Flanagan stated, quote, it touches on themes that are the most attractive to me, which are childhood trauma leading into adulthood, addiction, the breakdown of a family, and the after effects of all of that decades later, which if you've seen Midnight Mass, <laughs> is like what that whole show's about. You would probably, we should watch, you would like Midnight Mass. It's all about like Catholic guilt. I mean, I guessed from the, from the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So filming for Dr. Sleep began in September of 2018 in Georgia. Uh, locations included Atlanta, uh, St. Simons, uh, and within Atlanta specifically, they filmed at Covington, Canton, Stone Mountain, Midtown, Porterdale, and Fayetteville. Uh, and production ended up wrapping in December of 2018. So uh, three-month production cycle, which is pretty standard. Mike Flanagan apparently painstakingly recreated. He did not have his own uh, continuity editor. <laughs> Mike Flanagan himself painstakingly recreated the sets of the Overlook Hotel from blueprints that were acquired from Stanley Kubrick's estate when they were making the film. And something that I read that I didn't include here is that Flanagan and others involved in the film basically went to King and said, look, we know you don't like <laughs> The Shining, the film, but but people do. Yeah. And if we're going to make a sequel, we're going to have. Yeah, we're going to have to make it a sequel to the film and not to the book in your head or whatever. So um, they they basically kind of decided to very strictly um pay homage in lots of different ways which will be you'll see throughout the film to uh the film the shining again despite the fact that king himself is not a big fan of the film so a couple little easter eggy things before we get to some reviews here uh there's a scene in the hospital where azzy who is the cat in this film mm. that you mentioned uh in your book portion uh jumps up on a desk in front of dan and before he follows her to what should be an empty room he puts down a magazine that he was reading and that magazine is the same january 1978 issue of playgirl magazine that his father jack torrance read in the lobby of the overlook hotel while waiting uh for uh, a couple characters from that on closing day in the shining the room that danny interviews for his orderly position at uh the hospice place with Dr. Um, Dalton, who is Bruce Greenwood's character is identical 
to the office where Jack Torrance interviewed for the caretaker job in The Shining, uh, right down to the paint color, and there's a little American flag on his desk. He'll look out for that. Apparently, the that room he interviews <laughs> in is identical. Um, and so apparently most of the elements from The Shining, like that room and everything, were recreated with duplicate sets and lookalike actors, although there are three shots in the film that are actually directly reused from The Shining. Uh, and there are the aerial shot of the water and the island and the two shots after it. And I think this is all during the opening credits from my memory of the car driving on the mountain road. Mm-hmm. The shots were digitized, degrained, recolored as day for night, and then had snow digitally added. So they look different, but they are literally just the shots from The Shining. Interesting. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Considering they took the, the stuff they used from The Shining, they made it look different. Yeah. But then they recreated a bunch of stuff from The Shining and made it look as close to the exact I same mean, as possible. It's not, it's not a bad plan for creating kind of like an unsettling. Yeah, yeah like an uncanny like, valley. Like, yeah, like, like an weird, uncanny, like, like familiar, but not familiar. Yeah, kind of for vibe sure. Where that'll for put sure. You, yeah, put you on edge. No, it's a very, I think it's a very clever idea. I think it's really cool. Uh, and then some other people that were considered for the role of... Um, Danny, adult Danny Torrance, included Dan Stevens, the beast himself, <laughs> Chris Evans, America's ass, uh, Matt Smith, the doctor, and Hawkeye, Jeremy Renner. Uh, they all were considered and met with uh, Flanagan for the role, but Ewan McGregor ended up being cast with Stephen King's blessing. And before we wrap up, I uh, got a couple reviews here that I wanted to talk about. First up, from the BBC, Nicholas Barber gave the film four out of five stars, saying, quote, Credible in its characterization, rich in mythological detail, and touchingly sincere in its treatment of alcoholism and trauma, the film is impressive in all sorts of ways, but its greatest achievement is that it makes The Shining seem like a prequel, a tantalizing glimpse of a richer and more substantive narrative. Uh, Chris Hewitt of Empire gave the film three out of five stars and said, quote, Working off source material that is very different from its predecessor, anyone expecting a straightforward Shining sequel will be disappointed. This isn't a grueling exercise in pure horror. It's odder and more contemplative, but worth checking in on. Uh, and then Peter Travers of Rolling Stone, who he, uh, we hear from pretty often, said, quote, uh, or gave the film three out of five stars, saying, quote, Dr. Sleep relies way too much on borrowed inspiration and eventually runs out of, pardon the word, steam. But this flawed hybrid of King and Kubrick still has the stuff to keep you up at night. Uh, and then going back, uh, Roger Ebert, obviously dead at this point, but Brian Tallarico writing for RogerEbert.com gave the film three <laughs> out of four stars, stating, quote, Flanagan was tasked with making a sequel to a film that stays loyal to a book that ignores the changes made in the first movie. That ain't easy. And while one can sometimes feel Flanagan struggling to satisfy both King and Kubrick fans when he really should be trusting his own vision, he's talented enough to pull off this difficult blend of legacies. So that's an interesting take on the fact, you know, mm-hmm. how are you how are you handling? Yeah. Um, pleasing both uh, people who, who prefer Stephen King's version of the story and people who are big fans of Kubrick's uh, version of The Shining. So. Very, very interesting. Before we tell you where you can watch it, we want to remind you you can do us a giant favor by supporting us on patreon.com slash thisfilmislit and uh, by following us on all the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Goodreads. But on Patreon, if you support us for 15 bucks a month or more, you can get priority recommendation status. And this one is a patron request from Shelby's Ready for Spooky Season. 
Well, it's also longer than that, whatever. Shelby says, get ready for spooky season with it. Calls from the veil and monsters and mayhem. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you, Shelby, um, for uh, getting us prepared for spooky season with Dr. Sleep. Katie, where can people watch Dr. Sleep? Well, you can check with your local library or a local video rental store if you've still got one. Otherwise, you can stream this with a subscription through HBO Max, DirecTV, TNT, TBS, or True TV. Or you can rent it for around three to four bucks from Apple TV, Amazon, YouTube, Voodoo, Redbox, DirecTV, or AMC Theaters on Demand. There you go. So lots of different places. Uh, but HBO Max, it sounds like, is yeah, like if you have a streaming service and not like cable or something, yeah. that's like the place to get it uh, for, you know, if you're watching House of Dragon or the Dragon or whatever right now, um, you can watch Dr. Sleep. I'm looking forward to checking it out. Uh, I'm, I, I, I remember, you know, when the movie came out, mm-hmm. but I wasn't like I had seen The Shining when it came out, but I was not, I've never been like a. I think The Shining is a very good movie, but I've never been like, oh, my God, The Shining is like my favorite movie. It's so amazing. So I wasn't like super (laughs) psyched about it. And I've never I don't know if I've ever read any Stephen King. Yeah. So I've never been like a big Stephen King person. So it's not it wasn't something that was like hugely on my radar that I was super interested in. But after having done the podcast and really enjoying The Shining and when we talked about it, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, same. So it should be fun. I just need to read the book. I just need to read the book. That's going to do it for this prequel episode. Come back uh, in a little bit. We'll be talking about Dr. Sleep. Until that time, guys, gals, and non-binary pals, keep reading books. And keep watching movies. Keep being awesome. Sure. Why not? <laughs> Go backwards this time. <laughs>